Well, let's turn from the revelation of the New Testament, which we just sang from, to the revelation of the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. And this morning, we're going to get our first taste of biblical prophecy, why most people are interested in the book of Daniel. Uh, They want to know what it has to say about the future, and we're going to have a chance to uh, wade into that for the first time this morning. So hopefully you brought your thinking caps, because uh, it's not necessarily easy stuff to to grasp, but uh, I trust that with the help of the Spirit, that uh, He will illuminate us to understand what He meant by what He said here, and what He was talking about when He wrote this through the prophet Daniel. Let's pick up where we left off last week, Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 24. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon, take me into the king's presence and I will declare the interpretation to the king. As you remember, he had this dream, King Nebuchadnezzar had the dream, he wasn't sure what it meant. And he was asking his wise men to not only interpret the dream, but also to tell the dream uh, to begin with. Verse 26, the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen in its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. And here we go, the dream and the interpretation that we've been waiting for. You, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue, that statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue is made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. We haven't even read the interpretation yet, and we're getting excited, or at least we should be. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory, and whatever the sons of men dwell, wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combine with pottery." And now the most important part of the dream, what or who in the world is that stone? 
In the days of those kings, that God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will, it, it, it will itself endure forever. And as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mystery since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon, while Daniel was in the king's court. Father, we thank you for your holy word, and we thank you that it's true, and uh, the fact that what we've just read, much of which has already come to pass, Lord, gives us uh, hope and confidence that what is written here that is yet to come, has yet to come to pass, will come to pass in your way and in your time for your glory. I pray that you would excite us today as we consider this fascinating dream that you gave this pagan king to encourage not just the nation of Israel, but our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from the inception of mankind, uh, human beings have wondered about the future and wanted to know the future. And throughout history, there have been those who have claimed to be able to predict the future, and many have believed them. One of the most famous seers of all time was a 16th century French pharmacist by the name of Nostradamus. You heard of him? I thought so. During his lifetime, he wrote quatrains or poems, as they're called, uh, about various disasters like plagues and earthquakes and floods and droughts and wars and invasions and murders. And his avid followers have connected his words to numerous events that have taken place in world history and, and credit him with predicting things like the Great Fire of London, the rise of Napoleon and the rise of Hitler, the, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and even the, the terrorist attacks at the World, Center, World Trade Center on 9-11, they, they say they believe that Nostradamus saw those things and predicted those things. In the more than 500 years since he made his predictions, historians and observers believe that approximately 50% of the events that he predicted have already occurred and there are still more to come. Probably the most well-known American psychic in at least modern times was a woman named Jean Dixon. Remember her? Uh, who was believed to be able to predict the future. She's credited with predicting the assassination of President John F. Kennedy because she claimed that a Democratic president elected in 1960, a tall young man with blue eyes and brown hair, would die in office. As a result of that, she became wildly popular, and she served as an advisor to other presidents like Nixon and Reagan, who evidently relied on her to help them set their schedules according to her predictions. Well, despite the supposed success of people like Nostradamus and Gene Dixon in predicting the future, and despite the claims of contemporary psychics and palm readers that you might see from time to time driving down the road, um, the Bible makes it clear that no human being is able to predict the future. The only one who can predict the future is the one who knows the future. And the only one who knows the future is the one who controls the future. And that is God himself. And the reason why he knows the future is because he planned it out in the first place. And not only did he plan out how everything would happen, he controls everything to make sure it happens exactly the way he planned that it would. You're there in the neighborhood, and so just turn back to Isaiah chapter 46, just a few uh, pages back uh, through Ezekiel and then Isaiah. 
skip over Jeremiah Lamentations there too, but Isaiah chapter 46, Isaiah chapter 46, listen to what God says in verse 9, Isaiah 46 verse 9, he says, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other, I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. I believe he was referring there to Nebuchadnezzar, who would come and destroy uh, the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. And so that passage is just a reminder to all of us this morning that history is his story. It's God's story. And in eternity past, God planned out the history of the world from beginning to end. And since the world began, he's been sovereignly in control of everything that has happened in the past and that will happen in the future. And during biblical times, He chose to reveal some of these world happenings ahead of time to a select group of men called prophets. The most well-known New Testament prophet to whom God revealed future events was the Apostle Paul during his exile on the island of Patmos, and of course he wrote the book of Revelation. Second only to the Apostle John was the Old Testament prophet Daniel, who received revelation from God about future events during his exile in the country of Babylon. Daniel contains more fulfilled historical prophecies than any other book in the Bible. And I think that's why it is the most attacked book in the Old Testament. I don't know if you're familiar with that or aware of that, but but of all the books of the Old Testament, the one that is attacked most by liberal theologians and Bible scholars, uh, is the book of Daniel. Why? Well, because Daniel's predictions of the future and of particular uh, specific world events are so precise, liberal scholars conclude that there is absolutely no way that Daniel could have written this when he did, 600 years before the time of Christ. They argue that uh, a second century forger wrote history as though it were prophecy, uh, that is, they pretended to be foretelling the future when really they were just recording history and said, oh, by the way, this was Daniel writing. And you can read commentary after commentary and and boring and blasphemous argument after blasphemous argument uh, about the true authorship of Daniel... And all you need to do is turn to Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, and it, and it simply refutes all of those liberal arguments. Because in Matthew chapter 24, right in the midst of the Olivet Discourse, or what's often referred to as the Little Apocalypse... When you think about uh, the, the portions of God's Word that, 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 that uh, give us uh, the best picture into the future, you have the book of Daniel, and you have the book of Revelation, and then you have the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. But notice, right smack dab in the middle of this uh, discussion of Christ's return, Jesus attributes the book of Daniel to who? Daniel. Surprise, surprise, Matthew 24, verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. It's no surprise that Jesus referenced Daniel during the Olivet Discourse, because the book of Daniel holds the key to interpreting the rest of apocalyptic literature in the scriptures. Again, we said that uh, the word apocalypse means to unveil or to reveal the future. And so in the apocalyptic portions of of God's word, he revealed his future plans through visions and through symbols and through signs, uh, which typically focus on his people, Israel. However, what's unique here about the book of Daniel is that not only 
does God reveal his future plans for the nation of Israel? And we're going to see that in verses, or I should say chapters 8 through 12. But he also reveals his future plans for the Gentile nations. And we're seeing that here in chapter 2, and we'll see it all the way through chapter 7. And so beginning here in in chapter 2, Daniel recorded the most explicit prophecy of world history from the time Nebuchadnezzar conquered the nation of Judah until the return of Jesus Christ. This is what is referred to as the times of the Gentiles. And if you remember, I tried to explain this uh, the last couple of weeks, that how God ordained the nation of Israel to be his chosen people who would be set apart from and rule over all the other nations of the world. And as long as they stayed faithful to their God and king, they were invincible. No nation could defeat them. But when they disobeyed him and they lost their distinction by intermingling with the pagan nations and worshiping their gods and marrying their women, they also lost their dominion over the Gentiles. And God punished the nation of Israel by allowing the Gentile nations to defeat them and to rule over them. And yet God promised that in the future, he would send a mighty ruler to destroy the Gentile nations and restore Israel's dominance and set up his earthly kingdom based in the land of Palestine. And here in Daniel chapter 2, we're given a, a prophetic panorama, if you will, of how all this has already happened to some degree in the past and how it is all ultimately going to happen in the future. That's why I originally titled this text Predicting the Past and the Future because we see both things going on here. But at the end of the study, I thought, man, a better title is just The Everlasting Empire. And so that's what you have on your note sheet this morning. And it's key to remember here, and I tried to say that very specifically, but I want to say it again, that we are going to see here in this passage how All of this has already happened in the past to some degree. And how it is all going to ultimately happen in the future. Keep that in the back of your minds as we try to sort out this dream um, that Nebuchadnezzar had. Well, I've broken this narrative again into six sections just to give us some hooks to hang our thoughts on. And we saw in verse 1 how the king was perturbed. He had this recurring dream that was so troubling he was unable to sleep and he put some pressure on the wise men. Uh, he, he called them together, the smartest men in the Babylonian empire to help him figure out his dream that was causing him so much angst and yet on this occasion uh, in order to ensure that they didn't just make up some interpretation and just tell him what they thought he wanted to hear, he demanded that they had to describe the dream first before they gave him the interpretation. He reasoned that if, hey, if these guys can foretell the future, well, that's the harder thing. Surely they they should be able to recall the past. But they protested that he was making not just an unreasonable request, but an impossible one. There was not a man alive who could do what you're asking us to do, King. Only the gods can do this. And so in a fit of rage, he declared that they were all to die. Not just any death, by the, by the way, but torn from limb to limb, hacked to pieces, and their houses burned and turned into trash piles or, or toilets where people could use to go to the bathroom. Well, we saw how the servants of God prayed, and when Daniel heard that the king had ordered that all the wise men in Babylon were to be executed, he bravely and graciously appealed to the king for a stay of execution. And he ran home to the dorm room and said, hey guys, we got to pray because I just told the king that that we were going to be able to figure out his dream and I don't have a clue what his dream is. So let's pray. Let's get on our knees. And Daniel was convinced that God could miraculously reveal the dream to him. And if and when he did, it would serve as an undeniable proof to Nebuchadnezzar and all the wise men of Babylon that the God of Israel was the wisest, most powerful God in the universe. And as we, look, as we saw last week, God answered their prayer, and Daniel praised him for his wisdom and power. Verse 20, it says that Daniel blessed the God of heaven, 
and said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. And that brings us to our next point. The future was predicted. And we briefly and quickly read this, these next few verses as we closed last week, but let's just Read them again. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and he went and spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Interesting there that he didn't necessarily have to uh, advocate for the other wise men. In fact, those guys, uh, if I was Daniel, I probably would have liked to see those guys go the way of all the earth, right? These were the same guys that were going to ultimately try to catch him in some kind of uh, misdemeanor, some kind of uh, disobedience so that they could have him thrown to the lion's den because they didn't like him. They were jealous. And yet it shows that he loved his enemies. He was gracious to them and said, hey, don't kill these guys. He says, I can tell you what your dream was all about. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, his name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen in its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners, diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven. That's the theme, remember? It says it over and over again. It uses that same expression, the God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Key phrase, underline that, the latter days, which is a reference to uh, oftentimes the second coming of Christ. And so we're going to see that um, what uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw wasn't just up until the first coming of Christ. He actually saw beyond the first coming to the second coming of Christ. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, you thought your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. I love the example of Daniel here where he didn't take any credit for this interpretation, right, knowing the dream or interpreting the dream to himself. He gave all the glory and honor to God. And so we see first the description of the dream in verses 24, or excuse me, verses 31 through 35, the description of the dream. Verse 31, you, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue was large and of extraordinary splendor was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar in this dream, and he had this dream apparently multiple times, and he was seeing this magnificent-looking statue made up of four different materials. Notice he goes on, he says, the head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So you've got this head of gold, you've got uh, the uh, silver chest and arms, you've got bronze stomach and, and thighs, and then the rest of the legs and, and the feet are made of iron, and the feet were a mixture of iron and clay. And then he saw something else. Out of nowhere, this, this stone comes hurtling from heaven and hits the statue's feet, shattering it into a million pieces and, and scattering it like chaff in the wind. Notice verse 34. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. 
And Nebuchadnezzar is sitting there listening to Daniel with his eyes wide open going, exactly. It's exactly what I saw. How did you know that? Can you tell me what it means? <laughs> and so we see, after the description of the dream, we see the interpretation of the dream, verses 36 to 45. And what we are going to see here is this statue that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed about represented four successive world empires that would dominate the Near East until Christ returned. Notice verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell you its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. He's reminding King Nebuchadnezzar, listen, you are not as great as you are because of you. God is the one who made you the king of the world made you so powerful and strong and glorious and wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the fields or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. He was the world ruler at the time. He says, you are the head of gold. And so that just unlocks really the interpretation of the rest of the statute. If Daniel said, hey, listen, that, that head of gold was you and, and, and your kingdom, the Babylonian empire, well, naturally what followed. After you, after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. You might have little titles in your Bible over each of these verses, and so... Uh, we know that the head of gold, if, that, if the head of gold represents the Babylonian empire, then the chest and arms of silver obviously represent the nation that defeated Babylon, which were who? The Medo-Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian empire. And if, uh, if that's true, then, then the next part of the statue, the stomach and the thighs of bronze would be the, the empire that, that overthrew the Medo-Persian empire, and that was the Grecian Empire, the Greeks, and then uh, the fourth kingdom here, or the fourth uh, uh, part of the body, the final part of the body, was another kingdom that defeated the Greek Empire, and who was that? The Roman Empire. And so we see world history played out before it ever happened. And remember, we're looking back at this and going, oh yeah, yeah, it's exactly how it happened. Well, at the time, they had no clue what was going to happen. And yet God, through this dream that, Daniel, or that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel interpreted, he reveals world history. And you've got the Babylonian empire that reigned for 70 years, overpowered, overpowered by the Medo-Persian empire that reigned for 200 years. And then the, the Greeks came along and reigned for 267 years. And then the Romans came and destroyed them all and reigned for 500 years. And we're going to see when we get to chapter 7, Daniel himself had a vision of the same four kingdoms, but in his vision, they were in the form of four wild beasts. But notice as we go through here, the deteriorating worth and decreasing weights of the metals that were uh, talked about, so they... They deteriorated as they went down the statue. They decreased in weight, but they became stronger. They were stronger and stronger metals towards the bottom. In other words, each of the four kingdoms was larger and stronger than the one before them. And of course, the Roman Empire was the strongest and lasted the longest. Notice verse 41, how Daniel makes a distinction here in between the legs and the feet of the Roman Empire. 
Verse 41, and that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay. They will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combine with pottery. And so you see that the bottom portion of the legs were all iron, but when it gets to the feet, it was iron mixed with clay. You say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, based on other cross-references, both in Daniel and the book of Revelation, I think that this represents the Roman Empire in two different forms. The one that existed during the time of Christ's first coming, and a future revived Roman Empire that will exist during the time of Christ's second coming. Just turn over to Daniel chapter 7. This is one of the cross-references I'm thinking about. In, in, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 23, in, in Daniel's vision of the four beasts, he's talking about the fourth beast, which was representative of the Roman Empire. This is Daniel 7, verse 23. Notice how he describes this. Then the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of his, this kingdom... Ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. And so obviously, there's a little extra something, something going on in Daniel's vision, and he takes it beyond these 10 toes, if you will. And by the way, the 10 horns, I think, that he's referring to in Daniel 7 uh, are the same as the 10 toes uh, in, in, uh, in Daniel chapter 2. But again, jumping up into the book of Revelation, just in one, one verse, Revelation chapter 17 uh, verse 12 says this, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. So what is going on here? Well, again, I think in the future, ten kingdoms and kings or, or ten nations and leaders, ten leaders, occupying the territory that was originally part of the Roman Empire will unite and form some form of coalition. And because the Roman Empire was centered in Europe, it is reasonable to assume that these will be European nations who form some sort of ten-nation confederacy, possibly related to the uh, European common market. Are you familiar with that? Uh, back in the day, they, uh, the nations came together, the European uh, economic community. Uh, there's actually 12 nations a part of that today. Uh, that may change. Again, I'm, this is speculation here. We don't know exactly for sure if that would be this confederacy that, that, um, that, that Daniel was, was prophesying about. But the point is that the feet are made of iron mixed with clay, representing weakness, and the inherent weakness of this future federation will necessitate that one leader needed to rise to the top to unify these nations. And guess who you think that would be? The Antichrist. And I think that's who this, this king, that is this leader that, that Daniel is referring to in Daniel chapter 7, that is talked about in Revelation chapter 17, uh, this, this is a reference to the Antichrist. Notice verses 44 and 45, it says, in the days of those kings, and at this point I think it means the ten kings of the revived Roman Empire, not necessarily the Roman Empire in Christ's day during his first coming, he says what will happen? 
In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So we're introduced here to this uncut stone. The stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands. In other words, this stone, whatever it is, whoever it is, is not of human origin or human power. And of course, this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ and his everlasting kingdom that will never be conquered or replaced. And here we're introduced in the book of Daniel to the rock of ages, Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus Christ is often referred to as a rock in Scripture. Luke chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus himself said this. He says, as as Jesus looked at them, he said, what then is this that is written? And he's quoting here from the Old Testament, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Romans 9, 33, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. A obvious reference to Jesus Christ. And then uh, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, combines both of those Old Testament references from Psalms and, and Isaiah, and he says this in 1 Peter 2, 6, for this is contained in Scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed." Now, I said just a few moments ago that I believe that this is ultimately a reference to Christ's second coming, and there's some reasons for that, but we have to consider this, that because Christ himself and his apostles applied these references to him when he came to earth the first time, that means that in some sense... His kingdom did come at that time. Because if you just read this at face value, um, do we see Christ um, having conquered and destroyed all the other nations and all the other kingdoms of the world? Yeah, has that happened yet? No, it hasn't happened yet. And so, obviously, this is futuristic. And yet, listen to what Christ said about his kingdom. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, here I am. The kingdom of God is standing right in front of you. Luke chapter 1, verse 31, the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary about the birth of Christ He said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And then again, Jesus, in Luke 17, verse 20, now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming... He answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. You're looking at him. This is what Jesus was saying. And yet having said that, Christ's kingdom, as described here in Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, did not come in its fullness. In fact, Jesus taught his disciples to pray for his kingdom to come. 
that there was still part of his kingdom that hadn't come yet. Even though the kingdom had come, partially, initially, maybe that's the way I think about it, initially and partially, there was still some yet to come. And so he told them in the Lord's Prayer, right, to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as is in heaven. And so um, we need to understand when we're looking at Old Testament prophetic passages like the one we're looking at in Daniel 2, it's common for a passage like this to lump together predictions concerning the first and second comings of Christ without mentioning that there's a gap in between them. And so all Daniel saw was the coming of the Messiah. That's all he saw. When he was, when he was uh, receiving an, an interpretation of this dream, all he saw was the coming of, of this great king and, and, and the establishment of this great kingdom. But we have the privilege, right, of looking back at the first coming of Christ and looking forward to the second coming of Christ, and we realize we're living in that in-between time, which those are the things that the New Testament says the, 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 the prophets long to look into. They try, what are we talking about here? There's got to be more to what we're, we're saying here, and they had a limited view. And, and so as I was taught in seminary, and I thought this was very helpful, is to consider biblical prophecy like a series of mountain peaks. And when you're going hiking and you're hiking along, you say, I'm going to hike that mountain. And so you're, you, you set your side on that mountain, and you're, so you're walking along, and all of a sudden you, you get up to the top of that mountain, and you're like ready to uh, you know, ex- rejoice that you made it. And you get up there, and you realize that was just the first there's another mountain out there, right? But you just couldn't see that second mountain because it was covered by the first mountain. And that's really how we should view the first coming of Christ. It's like this mountain. And that's all that Daniel could see was this one mountain staring him in the face. He was looking at this and, and, and yet he never had the privilege of climbing up on top of it like we have, right? And, and now we realize that there's another mountain out there. And so there's this, this, this principle when you're interpreting Old Testament prophecy of the initial and partial fulfillment. Okay, you've got, you've got the initial fulfillment and you've got the final fulfillment. You've got the partial fulfillment and then you've got the full fulfillment. You've got the near fulfillment and you've got the far fulfillment. And you've got to keep that in mind when, when we're looking at passages like this. And so when Christ came the first time to set up his kingdom, the Jews rejected him because they were expecting an, what kind of kingdom? An earthly kingdom that would overthrow and replace the Roman Empire. Did he do that? Not physically. And what the Jews didn't realize is that his kingdom had to be first established in the spiritual realm by his suffering and dying on the cross rather than in the physical realm by conquering the Romans. And even though he, he didn't, Jesus didn't set up his earthly physical kingdom, Jesus Christ did establish his heavenly spiritual kingdom in the hearts of all those who repented of their sin and placed their faith in him. And so Christ's kingdom did come and that he's reigning as the king of kings and lord of lords in the lives of his followers. Is the kingdom of God alive and well on planet earth? Absolutely, and it's sitting right here. We're part of it. It's happening right now. It's going down. Or going up is maybe the better way to say it. (laughs) So the kingdom of God dwells in our hearts as Christians. And so in that sense, this prophecy was initially and partially fulfilled, that God did establish his kingdom through the person and work of Jesus Christ in the lives of his followers, like you and like me. However, we need to keep in mind that the Roman Empire wasn't destroyed. In fact, after Christ died and rose again and returned to heaven, Rome got even stronger and ultimately came back and destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70 and continued for centuries after that. So if you're looking at this prophecy going, wait a minute, scratching your head going, wait a minute, I thought thought this Messiah was going to come and so surely Jesus wasn't the Messiah because Rome's still ruling over us as the nation of Israel. 
And so the point is that because Christ didn't smash and shatter the Roman Empire the first time he came, obviously there's a part of Daniel's prophecy yet to be fulfilled. And this will happen at Christ's second coming. And when Christ returns, he'll destroy the nations of the revived Roman Empire led by the Antichrist, and he will set up his earthly kingdom in Jerusalem and reign on the earth for a thousand years. And the king of heaven will come and conquer the kings of the earth. And this prophecy in Daniel here I think will ultimately be fulfilled during the battle of Armageddon and during the millennial reign of Christ followed by the new heavens and the the new earth and Revelation, this is described Revelation 19 through 22. I'll never forget last, I guess it's a couple of springs ago now when we had the privilege of taking a group from our church to Israel and uh, we went to Megiddo, this little mound, little mountain that looks over the valley Uh, of Armageddon, and it's where the Bible says the final war, World War III, if you will, is going to be fought. And and, and there's a little place where you sit up on the top of this mound and you look out across this vast valley, and you're like, whoa, this would be like the ultimate field of war. And I said to the people, I said, hey, I said to our people, get a good look at this, because this isn't the last time you're going to be here. Kind of just sends shivers up your spine. Because if the scripture is true, and we know it is, those of us who are with the Lord in heaven are going to come back riding some horses, right? And we're going to fight in that valley for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's amazing to think that we actually could see where it was all going to go down in the end. We were looking at the future. Now, I know there's different ways that Christians interpret eschatology, different views, eschatological views. Eschatology is basically the theology of future things. How is the world going to end? How is all this going to play out? And so, you know, it's like putting a puzzle together as you read the scriptures and you look at Daniel and you look at Revelation, you look at the Olivet Discourse, you look at First and Second Thessalonians and, and all the prophetic literature and you try to piece it all together. And, and, and so some people take a, what's called a premillennial view where they believe that there will be a literal, uh, historical, earthly kingdom where Jesus will reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem. Uh, There's those that take what's called an amillennial view, where they say, you know what, there is not going to be any literal thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, Revelation chapter 20 is figurative, and why? Because um, all all this was fulfilled um, when Jesus came the first time. That's all that Daniel was talking about. It all went down. Um, It's already done. And we're just looking for the return of Christ. That's it. And then we go to heaven. There's some that take a post-millennial view that, that uh, there's going to be this millennial uh, kingdom of sorts and then things will get better and better and then Christ will return to kind of take, take over and say, yeah, this is, it's all about me and, and uh, you know, as things get better and better. Well, by the way, are things getting better and better? No, they're getting worse and worse. So that kind of rules that post-millennial view out right away, but probably the two main views would be the all-millennial view or the pre-millennial view, and and I think Nebuchadnezzar's dream clearly teaches pre-millennialism. Why? Because the four kingdoms that are described here, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, they were all literal, historical, earthly kingdoms And so why wouldn't the fifth and final one be the same? Why would all of a sudden it be a figurative kingdom? Granted, Christ's kingdom is spiritual right now, but someday it will become a literal, historical, earthly kingdom. And Daniel chapter 7, I think, implies this. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heavens, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. 
Revelation 11:15 says that the seven angels sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. So whatever this kingdom is that Christ is going to come and reign over, it's here on this earth. It's in this world, it's on this planet if you will. And so we see here this dream described and explained and interpreted. The future was predicted here. And then notice the result here. The result. The God of heaven was praised. Number five, verse 46. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods. I wish he had said the God of gods. And a Lord of kings. I wish he said the Lord of kings. He's not quite there yet. He's got to eat a little grass first before he puts the the in front of it all, right? But I think this was the first step. I think God was preparing Nebuchadnezzar's heart for what I believe was his dramatic conversion in chapter 4. But in the meantime, we'll take what we can get here, Right? Here he is bowing down before Daniel. He's saying, your God surely is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. So here, again, God is being glorified, being praised by this pagan king. And this was his way of humbling himself before Daniel's God, if you will, bowing before Daniel and acknowledging that he was superior to him. And all the gods of Babylon. Well, we know that Nebuchadnezzar had the same problem Dory had in finding Nemo, right? Short-term memory loss. He quickly forgot God's sovereignty over him and his kingdom. And God had to remind him of it again by humbling him in the strangest of ways. Stay tuned for chapter 4. But again... God was honored through Daniel's testimony in a pagan culture, and as a result, God honored Daniel. Notice the servants of God were promoted. Number six, verse 48. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, even as he had promised he would to anyone who could tell him his dream and interpret it. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. You could just see the, the, other, the other wise men just going, oh man, that, that was the, the beginning of the end in their mind for Daniel, right? They did not like this guy. Now he was above them. I think this is so interesting. At the beginning of the chapter, just a few verses earlier, uh, Daniel and all the wise men had been sentenced to death. Now he ends up being promoted to the position of prime minister of Babylon. I mean, this is, he, he's Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man. And he was responsible for overseeing all the other governors and magistrates in the entire land, as well as all the other wise men whose lives he had, he had spared. And notice, Daniel made sure his prayer partners, right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, didn't get overlooked when the promotions were being handed out. He wanted to take his, his, his homies with him, right? And Daniel made requests of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. The question is often asked, it's a question I've asked myself, where does the United States fit into all of this? You ever wondered that? I mean, I find it interesting that the United States of America appears to be strangely absent from biblical prophecy. I mean, in all the years I spent in Bible college and seminary and, and, and studying biblical prophecy, you know, I didn't hear a whole lot about the United States. Heard a lot about these ancient empires. Heard a lot about what might happen in Europe and obviously the Middle East and the, the Muslim nations that surround the Middle East. It's easy to see all that stuff. 
playing out. But I've wondered, how, how does the most powerful, dominant nation in the history of the world not seem to play a role in the end times? Can I give you my personal opinion? Okay. I don't want to give you, I got some chapters and verses for it, but not from the realm of prophecy. But I think when you consider the direction of our country and where it's going, by the time Jesus returns, we will no longer be the most powerful, dominant nation in the world that we've been historically. Just my opinion. You may remember uh, before our last presidential election, never been a political preacher, a political pastor, try to stick with the word of God, try to stick with the gospel. But I preached a message titled, When a Nation Abandons God. It was back in 2012. And I explained how the unleashing of God's wrath, described in Romans 1, when God gives people over to their sin, the sin of immorality, the sin of homosexuality, and then, then it's just pure insanity. That what they start doing and saying just makes no sense. They're calling good evil and evil good. I mean, if you want a description of the United States of America, just read Romans 1. Because that's playing out before our very eyes. God is giving us over systematically to our sin. And so from a biblical perspective, the decline, the decline of the U.S. shouldn't surprise us, nor should it surprise us from a historical perspective. Because as we see in Daniel chapter 2, all the great nations of the world have eventually collapsed, have, have been overthrown by someone or something else. Empires begin and, and, and they reach a peak and then they begin to fade and then they die out or they get defeated by others. The average age of a, of a world empire is about 200 years or so. The clock's ticking on us. Some of you may be familiar with the classic work by a historian named Edward Gibbon. He wrote a book called The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. You ever heard of that? And, and this is, he just listed five things that led to the fall of the Roman Empire. Again, a secular book, secular historian. But see if any of this sounds familiar. The rapid increase of divorce, the undermining of the dignity and sanctity of the home, which is the basis of human society. That's number one. Number two, higher and higher taxes and the spending of public monies for free bread and circuses for the populace. Number three, the mad craze for pleasure, sports becoming every year more exciting and more brutal. Number four, the building of gigantic armaments when the real enemy was within in the decadence of the people. And number five, the decay of religion, faith fading into mere form, losing touch with life, and becoming impotent to warn and guide the people. I think every one of those things is true of America right now, and it's no wonder why our country is in decline. I'm sure you're all aware by now that the slogan of one of the candidates running for president is, quote, make America great again. I personally think that the days of America's greatness are over. Unless God, in his mercy, sends a spiritual revival to sweep across this nation. Now, some of you are sitting there going, well, you're... You're sounding very pessimistic. In fact, worse, you're sounding unpatriotic. That's why I wore my red, white, and blue tie today, just so you know, okay? But our nation's problems are not political, they're spiritual. And what our country needs most is not new leadership or new legislature. We need to repent of our sinful rebellion against God and his word, and we need to return to our spiritual roots on which our nation was founded. Listen, like you, I love our country, and I feel so blessed to live in America. 
And I truly appreciate and respect all those who are fighting to defend the freedom we enjoy as Americans. But listen, as Christians who pledge our allegiance first and foremost to Jesus Christ, we need to remember that America is is merely an earthly empire that will eventually pass away like every other empire before us. That's the bad news. The good news is that we are blessed as believers to be part of an everlasting empire. And that's what we should be focused on the most. Doesn't mean we should neglect our duties as as American citizens to honor authority and serve in the military and vote and petition and pray and, and all those things. But our primary duty as citizens of heaven is to serve the king of heaven. And advance his kingdom by sharing the good news of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Listen, what do you do if you're on a sinking ship? What would you do if you're on a sinking ship? Find the lifeboat and get out of there. Well, hopefully, right, maybe you'll hand out some life preservers to as many people as you can. If you know the ship's going down, man, you want to you rescue people. And the gospel is the life preserver, if you will, and, the, and, and coming to Christ in repentance and faith is the only hope that people have to survive the destruction of our empire. Listen, the government can't save anyone, but the gospel can. That's why we need to stay focused on the gospel. One commentary said it this way, Quote, the future of Christ's kingdom is as secure as the promises of this chapter. His kingdom cannot fail. Soon it will be the only kingdom. This is why it is worth consecrating all that we have and are to the extension of Christ's kingdom. All our possessions and talents and energy energy should be devoted to the great work of winning others to Christ. We cannot fail. We sow this seed. Not all of it grows, not even most of it, but some of it always does. And another life then comes to be lived under the lordship of Christ. How much marvelous to be a member of such a kingdom, how awful by unbelief and failure to repent to be eternally outside of it. And that's a good reminder as we close that those who reject Christ will be smashed and scattered just like Nebuchadnezzar's statue and all the the nations who oppose him. I love Psalm 2, which was written even before Daniel. And Psalm 2 talks about the reign of the Lord's anointed. Turn turn there with me as we close. Psalm 2. You don't want to miss this. The reign of the Lord's anointed. Really, we just need to read it. It interprets itself. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, the nations are saying, listen, we don't want God's rule over us. We don't want to be slaves of, of Jesus Christ. Let's tear these chains off. Cast them away. In other words, the kings of the earth, the nations of the world, the people of this planet are trying to get out from under the authority and the rule of God. And notice verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You say, well, who is that? I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my, who? Son. Today I have begotten you. He's talking about his son, Jesus Christ. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Sounds just like that statue, right? When the rock came and shattered it and it just scattered it into the wind. So if that's true, and that is going to happen, that Christ is going to return, and he is going to smash and scatter all those who reject him and his rule over them, what should we do? Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, show discernment. 
wise up, in other words. Take warning. Be warned, O judges of the earth. And most importantly, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Some translations even say kiss the Son. That he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Beloved, my question to you this morning is, are you one of those blessed ones who have taken refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ? And if not, I would encourage you to do the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar did in the same way that he humbly bowed before Daniel, that you humbly bow before Jesus Christ and honor him and gladly invite him to set up his kingdom in your life and rule over you as your King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you do that, someday you will have the joy of hearing him say, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Jesus. And as that song says that all heaven and earth proclaim Jesus, 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 kings and kingdoms shall all pass away, but there's something about that name. And Father, I pray that as we've looked at this prophecy, that the one thing that would stick out most is that smashing stone that represents the glorious, all-powerful King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, whose kingdom has been initiated ever since his first coming in the hearts of those who love him and know him and follow him and will one day be fulfilled completely when he returns. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who has yet to find refuge in Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation. They, they, would, they would wise up and they would run to Christ. Because you, in your grace and your mercy, have given them a glimpse into the future today. What a blessing to know what the future holds so that we can prepare for the future. And so help us to make wise preparations, we ask. And may we be faithful, Lord, to to prove where our true loyalties lie, not in this country, albeit as blessed as we've been, but our loyalty lies in Christ and his kingdom. And may you help us strike that balance between being a good citizen of this country and a citizen of heaven. And most of all, may we seek to win as many others to Christ as possible, Lord, that we wouldn't be those that are like, hey, if this person gets elected or this person gets elected, I'm moving. I'm getting out of here. Lord, all the more reason to stay right here. Who needs to go on a missions trip when we can go across the street? And our country is just becoming more and more of a mission field. And I pray that we would take advantage of this season, the times in which we live, so that ultimately you would get the honor and glory from every living thing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.